So hello everyone and welcome to another session for Project Healing Wise. And uh, let me start by introducing myself, your host for today. Uh, I am Imelda Anquist, and I'm also the author of this book, Natural Born Shamans, and of all my books, that's probably the most relevant book for the topic we're talking about today. And uh, before I introduce our amazing guest for today, let me just explain what Project Healing Wise is all about. So Project Healing Wise started about a year ago when the world had gone into lockdown. And many people like myself were aware of many children and young people, you know, having lost so many things like going to school and access to friends. And also some children are in very difficult home situations. So there was an awareness of there, you know, there being a need for spiritual or shamanic outreach work for children. So what I've been doing is I've been running almost monthly sessions where I've had other people on as guests, you know, talking about a special area of experience or expertise. And the previous recordings are all on a closed Facebook group called Healing Wise, and they remain available there. But as that is a closed group, I'm also thinking I'd like to make some of the material available to a larger audience, because I think this is material that we, I think Rachel agrees with me, uh, we want people to be able to find. So the plan is to put this session on YouTube as well, to make it available to other people. So I think that's enough about me, and that's enough about the project, calling together people who have well-honed spiritual skills, and making those skills available. It's currently online, but in the future, hopefully more in person as well, to children all over the world who are you know, suffering or facing challenging situations. And previous work is also, we've done work for children in refugee camps and children that we cannot get to at all, but still possible, spiritually speaking, to do work on behalf of those children. So, okay, now over to the most important part, and I'll talk later a bit when Rachel tells us about her life, talk about some of the case studies I've done um, with children on the autistic spectrum. So Rachel, who are you? And uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Okay, well, thank you, Imelda. Well, first of all, I'd like to say I'm a student on Imelda's SAVER course. Um, we're having a bit of a pause at the moment because of lockdown, but um, we had the first year and we're looking forward to having another one later this year, we hope. Um, but apart from that, I work as an energy healer and a channel. Um, I do a lot of earth healing work. I work very much with our evolutionary process at the moment. I have a podcast called Sacred You, where I do stuff, I interview people, I've interviewed Imelda in the past, um, work a lot with Mary Magdalene and her daughter, Sarah, and um, yeah, but I'm here today to talk about Benji, our eight-year-old son, he has an autism of diagnosis, um, autism of diagnosis. <laughs> We were talking about how to say it and I just managed to get it round the wrong way. He's got a diagnosis of autism and severe ADHD. And um, it's not something I've talked about publicly at all. I've been very cautious about going there, but I'm really happy to talk to Imelda today. Yeah, and also really want to say that it takes real courage to go on camera 
and talk about these things because obviously this is your child and this is your personal life. But also, of course, you and I had some dialogue before we made this recording. And as I was saying a moment ago, I think we both agree that it's important there's material out there also that can be found by parents who maybe maybe currently face such a diagnosis. And you know, what's the journey that unfolds? You know, what are the possibilities open to you? And also, like, are there additional things you can do that you may not hear from the medical or educational professionals? So I think that's going to be the topic of our conversation today. So like, I commend you for being here. I'm very grateful you're willing to be here. And you know, Benji is just a gorgeous boy. I love following his progress on, on your Facebook page. So um, let's start at the beginning. Um, could you please tell us something about Benji and also how, about your journey as parents, you and your husband, in uh, you know receiving that diagnosis and obviously that's a long journey there's quite a lot involved before you even get to that point and the journey of like accepting that this really was his diagnosis mm. well us moving country also plays a big part in this story because when benji was a year and a half we moved from the uk to denmark because my husband is danish um and actually, Thomas had already been here for a year before I came over because I didn't want to come. My eldest son, Joshua, he lives in the UK with his dad and I did everything I could to stay living very close to them. But in the end, like reality was my husband, he, he's a university professor, associate professor, and um, he couldn't get work in the UK. He did try. <laughs> he um, nearly got a job, but he was overqualified. <laughs> So that's how it that's how it goes. So so we had to come over. And so obviously that was traumatic for both me and Benji. Benji loved his brother, Josh. It was really, really hard, heartbreaking for him. So initially when we came over, Benji did not adapt that easily. He was he was quite angry and upset a lot of the time. And we put it down to the fact that we'd moved um and he's sort of like his whole world has suddenly like disappeared mm. um but then it kind of the problem started because it, in denmark it's it's a very different culture to the uk around young children it's very very normal for young children to start in a uh Vogestur, Bernhauer, from the age of like one because all the mums work in, in Denmark, mums and dads, they all work. They tend to do shorter hours than us. They work till about three or four and then do stuff in the evening, but they all work. So, so there's no kind of setup because in the UK, there's loads of play groups and stuff like that. Mm. In Denmark, no, it's like they're, they're not around. So he couldn't actually stay at home with me because it would just be me and him, which would not be, you know, stimulating for him. So off he went to Vogelstuart. Um, he picked up Danish within three months of being here. You know, he to this in three months he was speaking it to the same level. But straight away there was problems. The pedagoga were calling us in for meetings straight away. He wouldn't do what he was told. He wasn't being like the other children. And, you know, to me, a lot of the stuff they were saying, we have very different cultural expectations. The English from the Danish, like, we don't really expect our children to do what they're told when they're two years old. We kind of manage them. So all along, I was like, not picking up the sun. 
hindsight, I really don't know. But um, things didn't really become clear until he started school when he was five. And then it really hit the fan. It really, really hit the fan because he just was running around the school completely uncontainable. And he was just in such a state of stress. So um, he managed to teach himself to read <laughs> by being on the iPad because because it, in, in this commune where we live, they give children iPads as soon as they start school. When they're five, they all get their own iPad, which I was just completely horrified about. But this is this is what they do here. And so Benji would basically have an adult with him. They had to take him out of the class. He would have an adult with him and he would basically be on the iPad for his school day. And, and then he would, you know, come home. He wouldn't eat or drink. They weren't geared up to getting children to eat or drink because children of five are supposed to be able to feed themselves yeah. and take adequate um, water. So he would come home without any like nutrition or hydration it was so stressful it was unbelievable and this went on for about six months the school psychologist had seen him she suspected he had adhd but wasn't really pushing for a diagnosis because she felt that as soon as he got a diagnosis his educational needs would not be met because he was so bright he's such a bright boy but um we had a we had an incident one weekend where Thomas, my husband, he took Benji off to Copenhagen Zoo because Benji had missed out on a school trip. And this was oh, I still get upset about it now. They'd all gone to the zoo and they left him behind because they couldn't manage him because mm. he he wouldn't do, he won't do what he's told. Yeah, so he got left behind and he loves going to the zoo. So Thomas took him to the zoo at the weekend and then coming back from um on the train he lost him thomas lost him and because i mean like i am so, i'm so i'm so typically english it's like we never take our eyes off our kids we have them attached on reins whereas in denmark they think you only do that to dogs <laughs> and, and 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 children are allowed to walk quite far ahead and things like that because they don't have the same traffic conditions you know they can do that they can do that here and their children stay alive but in Denmark but so Thomas wasn't didn't he never watched him that closely and he was just texting me to say what time they would be back because they were about to get on the train and he looked up and Benji had gone and what had happened was they distracted he got on the train with somebody else thinking it was Thomas. And he ended up at Central Station. Thomas phoning up the police and everything. And someone took him to like lost property. And and oh. yeah, I know, I know, I know. And I mean, Thomas was just terrified to tell me because he knew I was going to instantly want to kill him because he doesn't watch him all the time in the way that I think he should, you know. But anyway, he. Thomas found him at lost property. But then at that point, I said, that's it. He's getting a diagnosis. I don't care about his educational needs. I just wanted him to stay alive. So uh, we had a meeting. We called a meeting with the school and I said, I want him to be diagnosed. And I, I think, I think, I think the school, 
I can't remember now how it happened, but anyway, he start, they started the diagnosis process. And um, that took about a year. Mm-hmm. That took, and, that, and that's not unusual. In the UK, I hear, I did join some ADHD groups, but to be honest, the people on them were so distressed and there was just so many awful stories. I couldn't cope. It was like, mm-hmm. I, did, I needed some, you know, positive sort of messages. And it was just, it was just too distressing to sort of read through what was happening with people. Um, so, but yeah, it took about a year for him to get his diagnosis. And they said, oh, we don't think he has autism. We think he's got severe ADHD. And, you know, that meant that he could like get referred to like a special school and stuff like that, which is what happened. Um, And then that didn't go too well for the first year because Benji was so traumatized at having been taken out of the school because even though he hadn't been in the class and everything, he'd still got to play with all the kids. Mm. at like playtime and he'd formed some really good you know for him friendships because he he very much like played the joker and made everybody laugh Mm. and he loved it he loved having that audience and then when he got to his special school there was just him and I think two other boys Mm. in the class and they both had autism and they didn't laugh at his jokes but he was just he was so traumatized from losing his community he and just that was basically second loss, wasn't it? He that, exactly coming from the UK to yeah. this because it's yeah. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Then, you know, when you're trying to settle there and like build a life, there is this whole other loss that could also in him activate some of the previous loss trauma and experience. Exactly, exactly. So it was just it was so heartbreaking for him. So the first year at his special school, he just he had his own room he would go into and he just used to go in there on the iPad. And it didn't start off like that. I mean, that's not how the school is set up, but he managed to manipulate the whole system <laughs> so that so that that is that is that is how it went. And, and they were getting to the point where they said, look, we don't know if we can keep him here. Perhaps he has to, because his special school is like a midway school. There's actually called something called a behandling scholar, which is like a treatment school. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, we think he's going to have to go there. So... I mean, during all this time, I was not convinced that they got the right diagnosis for him because although he has got severe ADHD, I mean, especially back in those days, Benji could not get through a meal or get dressed or anything without coaching, without constant coaching. Um, But um, I felt he had ODD, which is oppositional defiance disorder because he won't do anything that he's told, basically. Um, and I asked them to reassess him and the school psychologist said, no, the psychiatrists were like, "Mm." but in the, in the end, through help of the runes, (laughs) which we could talk about, yeah, we can talk about how that helped through the whole medical system. And I have to say the psychiatrists were quite helpful. And the problem is with autism is that each children each child presents so differently there is no like i've just honestly i'm a trained psychiatric nurse i had no idea about any of this it's just it's been such an education Mm. but um in any way in the end i said you have to diagnose him again you have to you know reassess him and they did and they found out he's autistic 
and things have got a lot easier since then so which is which is mm. you know that's been quite a strange experience for me that actually getting a diagnosis actually helps because in mental health usually getting getting a diagnosis is not necessarily helpful something you're trying to stay away from but but in in this kind of area um yeah, yeah. It can be a very hard topic and it can be hard for parents to navigate. You know, it's hard anyway to accept, you know, if your child needs to have a diagnosis, there's always that grief work around. I think no parent thinks they're going to have a child and need a diagnosis. In some ways, you, you have to grieve over. Also, you know, of course you love your child dearly, but the baby is also the trajectory there that's not going to happen and you need to sort of grieve that. But the thing is also, if a child's behavior is quite severe and they do not have a diagnosis they're not entitled to help and i think that is the flip side of the story that the moment you can say he has a diagnosis of autism that entitles you to more help certainly in the scandinavian countries and those countries are pretty well organized around things um but it also means that i guess in everyday uh, circumstances we take him to the park and he doesn't behave like a neurotypical child you could say you know he's got autism so people like understand there is something going on or how do yeah. you see that yeah but so he didn't actually get that autism diagnosis until last august really? so it's yeah so it's not it's even so been a, and he's he's eight eight now mm-hmm. um but all the all the things I was reading um, something the other day, all the things they say about oh, because usually it's picked up quite young because they do this when they're babies and they do that. He didn't do any of it. I mean, he's fluent in two languages. <laughs> <laughs> Danish is now his first language, but he was speaking very very early on. He learned, you know, he taught himself to read at school, yeah. and yeah. so all of these things they say about like slow language development. It you know it certainly didn't like apply to him and also he loves people he really Mm. although he gets overstimulated by people which i understand because so do i i mean i think that's it a lot of the things they said were adhd and autistic you know noise sensitivity yes hello Mm. you know to Mm. me if you're a sensitive person you know psychically sensitive then you have all these things anyway so to me Mm. it was quite normal that he couldn't sleep uh at the nursery in a room full of 18 children i'm like well of course he can't you know it's like yeah yeah so i think you've given a very good description but you know there may also be people who kind of watch this like wanting to learn more so for people who are not familiar with asd or maybe for families who think maybe this is something we need to have our child assessed for but for people who've not made the journey yet of learning so much as you have done um like what would you say or even for the people for whom it's not an issue with their own children but who want to understand better when they meet children on the autistic spectrum like in the park or in school like um so question i like what would you say to them and also say something about how better comprehension by other by other people of the issues involved like you know could that improve your life I mean, I think I think if you are concerned that, you know, your child might have ASD would be to contact a health professional, because the problem is, like, if you have a child in these circumstances, you're usually so busy trying to deal with the outcome of that, especially if like they've suddenly gone to school and it's all just, 
you don't have time to educate yourself you don't have time to do anything you're just trying to like get through the day and keep your family going and your child alive um so it's it's to reach out you know or reach out to one of the um you know support things like the the charities that are around which obviously going to be different from country to country or reach out to other people maybe you know someone um who also has you know a child but is basically just reach out somewhere and and get some help don't try and cope with it on your own (laughs) no yeah and how do you feel like when you're you know not like in in the setting of like Benji's school where he is now, but when you more like you take him to the zoo or you take him to the park and you meet families who have not met Benji before, like is, do you feel, can you manage that just fine? Or do you feel that a higher level of other people informing themselves, um, that that would make a difference to your life with Benji? Is that an issue or not? Um, you mean, you mean like, like telling people about Let's say him. you take him to the zoo and he behaves a bit, let's say, wilder than a regular eight-year-old. Or maybe, you yeah. know, people give you looks as parents, like, oh, you haven't put your kid under control. Or, you know, people will, like, make comments or, you know, I don't know if they do that, but, you know, I've certainly seen it done. So just yeah. wondering uh, in terms of, uh, like, the whole population really educating themselves a little bit more about, you know, what goes on for children with AASD and how the rest of us who maybe do not have ASD or know a lot about it, like how can we meet that with greater sensitivity and understanding? Yeah, I mean that 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 is it is is a real tricky area, and I've other you know I've heard other parents like discussing it, like things that I've read and things that I've heard, but um, I'm not sure there's any easy solution because to tell somebody your child's got a diagnosis of of special needs. You kind of need to have a bit of a relationship with them. It's not something you can just casually like say to someone who's given you a funny look. You know, it's it's a vulnerable thing to say to anybody anyway. So I, you know, like my neighbours, I always tell my neighbours <laughs> because you know Benji shouts and he screams and you know it really sounds like we're murdering him. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know i don't want people to think like that something terrible is going on and should they call the police and you know it's upsetting for people if i say he's autistic and he's got severe ideas they're like oh okay you know and then and then and then they're really sweet and kind and 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 helpful but you know people that are in the street or in the shops Yeah. yeah yeah i mean I mean, this is this is one of the things I, I thought about before Benji got his diagnosis. I remember taking him to there was like a school holiday um, event where children could make something or other, you know, and the Kamuna had set it up and I took him along and he'd been there with school and he wanted they were they had all these boxes like full of like good stuff to make stuff with. And he was pulling out this box of like wooden toys. And he wanted to glue them to his paper. And I'm like, no, Benji, you can't do that because they have to stay here and be played with. I can, I can. We did it the last time, which I know wasn't true. And I was putting the box away and he started screaming and kicking me. And this was before he got his diagnosis. And I was just like, I know there were some people there that I knew like professionally because I was involved in a healing group there. And I was just like, 
like the English mother in me was just dying of embarrassment because like in Denmark, no one shouts at their kids. Whereas in the UK, it's like we have this moral obligation to make our children behave. So we're, we're, we make sure everyone can hear us when we say, no, no, so-and-so, you can't do it. Whereas in Denmark, you like, you never tell your kids off. And I had to, you know, I was really having to. And then I, I, I walked out and I said to him, I wish I'd never brought you. And he said, I wish you'd never brought me either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it, but I think that day, I think that day, I think that the, the English mother in me sort of died that needs to show off to everybody about how good her kids are. Yeah. Because I've just like, I don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. I know he's going to carry on. And it's like, I just like, I just, I've really released, I've really released that need to sort of mm-hmm. be morally morally good at in public so I guess people have to find their own ways of coping because that's it you can't tell from looking at a kid with ASD that they have ASD I mean Benji looks completely normal I mean yeah no that's the thing isn't it I've sometimes heard parents say that that it would always have been easier if they had a visible disability so people see it and they adjust their expectations well now there's always that whole education piece so um yeah, no. Um, well, we've all been, uh, you know, the pandemic is still going on. The UK is unlocking a bit. I don't know what's happening in Denmark. Things, things in Sweden are still quite dire. Yeah, our family, my husband is Swedish, so we spend more time in Sweden. Um, so how have the pandemic and all these lockdowns affected your family? How has that worked out for you in Denmark? Well, in, in, in some ways, I feel it hasn't affected us as much as other people um, because after the initial impact, so we shut down really early in Denmark. We shut down like early March, I think it was, and everything just shut down. People were so, again, very different mentality here in Denmark. People were just like, ah! And we all locked ourselves indoors and we didn't go out. And so, you know, Thomas was home. He was in the room behind me teaching his classes online. I was in here where I am doing this. And Benji was in the kitchen, like on his computer because he, you know, he had his school computer and that went on for a couple of weeks. And then I, it was really, really difficult though. Like managing the three of us at home, I was like this, this is not sustainable. We're going to have a breakdown. I'm going to have a breakdown anyway. And I spoke to one of my friends and she said she'd heard on the news that um, they actually, the school that Benji was at, they actually had to give us like support, which they hadn't mentioned actually. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, so the next day I wrote to the, the school leader of his department and I said, you know, we are really struggling. This is not sustainable. What, can you, you know, offer us? Because they do, they have, you know, they do know Benji is a high maintenance child. They do understand his needs. Um, because even sort of like compared to the other kids at school, he is very, very high maintenance. And um, so they offered us, I think, eight hours a week. He went in four hours on a Tuesday and four hours on a Thursday. And that kept us alive uh, yes. for the next couple of months. And then by this time they sort of got a hands on what was going on and they opened up the special needs schools again yeah okay. so they went back 
And then I just had Thomas at home. And then eventually he also managed because he's like a public servant. They sort of had like closed like all the universities and everything. But he has a prolapse disc on his back. He has a special desk at work for standing up and he has this back pain. So he said, I, I need to go back to work well, for my <laughs> desk. And so he got he got back into he got back into his office as well. So that was I think that happened at the beginning of this year. So I was just like you thank you. Space. <laughs> oh, in, yeah, so in some way having these extra problems has made our life wow. easier in in, yeah. in in that way. Because we're an apartment and I, you know, and I know lots of other people are and have had to live like through the whole thing and it, it's really difficult. Yeah, it is yeah. difficult for so many people. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've also like promised our audience we'd start talking about like the spiritual dimension and you know spiritual and shamanic practices. So maybe let me ask you first, what brought you to say the work and to shamanic practices? Well, before I answer that, just in case I forget, I did want to make the point that so Benji just got his autism diagnosis in August. And we've been in crisis really for about, I don't know, two or three years wow. with him. So we're just starting to come out now. So I just feel like I'm starting to get my head around. I'm not presenting myself as an expert at all. I'm just like sharing like my experience. I you certainly don't. Mother. Yeah, exactly. I don't have all the answers. I'm not saying I'm some sort of autism <laughs> spiritual expert or anything like that. Not not at all. You know, this is just sort of, you know, what I've noticed along the way, really. But um, yeah, the saver. So a few years ago, I so when I came to Denmark, I had to go to language school because of Brexit. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have gone otherwise, Imelda, because I'm not like you. <laughs> I'm not a language. I'm not a language lover at all. And, you know, I find it really strenuous and feel so self-conscious. <laughs> I'm a typical Brit, I'm afraid. Mm. And um, but Brexit happened, which meant that I would be a person living in Denmark from outside of the EU. And Denmark have one of the hardest um, immigration requirements mm. out of all the countries in the world. So I was like, <laughs> because, you know, what were we going to do if I got deported? So one of the requirements is you have to have a certain um, language qualification if you want to apply to live here called the Dance Poetry. So I had to go. I had to go. And I tuna, it was a really academic qualification. So um it's sort of quite a high like level and but it doesn't really teach you to speak danish so oh. i had to study 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 read and write really well i had to give a presentation in danish but we we never spoke in the class really it was all just passing tests and all the rest of it but two and a half years it took me um and luckily at that point they were paying for it because otherwise it would have cost me quite a lot um so i went to language school and it was so stressful a lot of the conversation the things we were doing were around politics and the state of the world and i was surrounded by people who were you know very interested in business and all they were traumatized immigrants from you know iraq and places like that so it was a very difficult setting to sit in every day like energetically and then 
we would get a summer break and I can remember thinking right oh oh I had no energy for any spiritual practices or anything I just used to like get through the day come home and then deal with what was going on at home and then we yeah and then we had this long summer break and I was like oh thank god I can do something spiritual what can I do and I had this huge urge come up in me to do something shamanic which I'd never really done. I mean, I've done loads of training and healing and this and that and the other, never really done anything shamanic. So I thought, okay, I know some people who offer training. Thomas had done some of their stuff in Copenhagen. I'll go and do that. Looked up the courses, they were all fully booked. Oh, all right then. So I went online doing whatever I was doing that day and I saw something by Sandra Ingerman she was doing you know she she's just does so many so many teaching things and courses she was teaching this shamanic working in your community I was like oh that sounds great I'll do that so I did that it was great I used to go and listen to the journeys I used to go and walk along the fjord and then find somewhere to lie on the ground and listen to these these journeys so that I was outside next to the water with fresh air and not in a house or a classroom, you know? And then I heard you talking on there, Imelda, about your work with children. I was like, oh, wow, this is great. I love this, I love this. And I looked up your website and then I saw you were teaching in Sweden. And then I saw, because that was the introduction course um, in Skolna. And it's just like literally like an hour and a half away from where I live. And I was like, oh, this is such a blessing. So I signed up for that did that introduction course you didn't actually come in the end um but Anna Kjellin taught it and she was fantastic and I really I mean one of the big things I wanted to do it for was because I needed to understand the spiritual energy of where I'm living because yeah. I work a lot with earth places and I work mm. a lot with you know sacred power places that need help basically mm -hmm. yeah and there there was a there's a big um, Grauhoi um, mound, burial mound near here called Um. And I'd gone there and there was this guardian there. He was standing there. He was not happy. He was not happy. And I was like, I think I need to understand more about Scandinavian spiritual stuff before I start trying to have a conversation with this person or why he's there or whatever. So it was also because I just, I needed something to ground me here. You know, here I am in Denmark, it's very hard to get work. I've applied for jobs. I've never even been offered an interview here. And that is a really common experience for um, immigrants here. Basically, I'd have to go and take a Danish training. But again, there's a lot of them that I'm barred from because I don't have the right you know, way to get in. But anyway, I wanted to work, you know, how do I, how do I live here in this country? And, um, and I said, I'm just going to do the introduction course. That's it. And I off I went and then, oh, it was just amazing. I just didn't expect to love it so much because I've never been interested in the Vikings. I mean, <laughs> where I live in Roskilde, there's the Viking Escape Museum and it's nice. I like it. It's the Viking Ship Museum because it's got this amazing glass window that looks out of the fjord. But I just all that blood and killing and all that. Do you know what I mean? It's like I've never it's never really been my thing. And then and then 
And then, you know, doing that work with Anna Killing, it was like, oh no, there's this whole female other energy thing going on. And, um, and, and then old Norse people who weren't Vikings also, just adding that for the historical records that not old Norse people were Vikings. That was a small proportion of what was going on. Let me just say that from the teacher's point of view. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's it exactly, isn't it? This is about this is about the perceptions that we have of that's certain it. things because that is that is how it always gets like presented because that is what gets the tourists yeah. or or whatever, and it's like no no that's not true that's not it at all mm. and um yeah and then when I, you when, I came, the, when I came you ended up on the, doing a whole two-year program then i did yeah i mean week became something more involved right yeah that's it it wouldn't it wouldn't leave me alone but because when i came back from that people were going wow you seem so much happier you're really different what is it and i said oh <laughs> i went on a safer course <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah excellent so um the big question then becomes you know, for the topic today like do you use any spiritual or shamanic practices with your family and with benji i mean how is that going so yeah i was so i was i was thinking about this and with benji i mean what so one thing that was just so amazingly useful. So when he got his initial diagnosis of ADHD, severe ADHD, they are not keen to medicate special needs kids in Denmark, which is great, you know? <clears throat> and I'm, I'm really happy about that. But they felt Benji was so severely disabled by his condition that it would help him to have medication. Because like I said, you know, even basic things like eating, sleeping you know these were things that were sort of beyond his reach um and also we couldn't cope with him at home so and but i I mean you know i'm an alternative therapist i am not a person who reaches for medication at all um but in this situation i thought you know we would have tried anything basically um so we did try medication they tried the amphetamine thing first the Ritalin he just went crazy on that so that was three days I think that lasted that experiment then they tried um something else I can't remember which one that was began with s I think and he took that he took that for a few months um and it did sort of seem to help but I don't know but by Christmas, he so I think he started it in October and by Christmas, he was really just, I mean, I really felt like he was manic. And I kept saying to the doctors when we had the visits, I, you know, I'm not sure what's happening, but I think it's his medication, but they weren't listening to me on that occasion. Um, and then one day he, he, there was one incident where he was just running around the apartment and he was so overexcited. I mean, the thing was, it was because it was coming up to Christmas. I thought perhaps it was all of that. And then, you know, because kids get so overexcited at Christmas. And then after Christmas, he was still doing it. And that's when oh. I thought something's really wrong. He ran into the bathroom and hit his head really hard on the sink. And he, he didn't even miss a beat. He didn't stop. He just kept going. And I was like, something's really wrong. 
but it was just I couldn't work out what was happening so I pulled a rune <laughs> like come on went over to my rune bag help me help me help me and I pulled out Dargas and I said to Benji can I do some rune stuff with you mm-hmm. now Benji he's like and I think this is like a fairly sort of autistic trait he's like I'm the spiritual one he's a gamer <laughs> He's so black and white about anything. Like if I talk about spirits or anything like that, he's like, no, he's not having any of it because like he can't see them. So they're not there. You know, he wants tangible things, but he's like, he will, he will, what's the word? I can't think. He'll he'll allow me to do, he'll allow me to do these things. So I chanted Dargas over him and asked it for its help. And we did all that and I could feel stuff happening. And then we did that. And he just sat lay there looking at me very bemused. And then and then about an hour later, it suddenly hit me. He has gone manic. He has gone manic. And I because all you know, all the meetings that we have at school and things like that, they're all in Danish. I you know, I have to like and my Danish is okay, but when it gets to really complicated like when you're looking at the instructions for medication and things like that, it's in Danish. So I have to look everything up on the internet, but it just means I don't have things to hand. So I went back to the internet and I looked up the side effects for this um, medication he was on and mania was a possible side effect. So I, I stopped his medication. I checked that it wouldn't hurt him if I stopped his medication because some of them you can't just stop. Um, and I, I left messages for his doctor to phone up and you know I said to her, he's manic. And she didn't believe me <laughs> because, I mean, this has been so shocking for me because obviously as a psychiatric nurse, when I used to tell doctors things, they used to listen to me. Not always, but most of the time my professional opinion was respected and I'm used to that. And then as a parent, uh-uh. Opinion of a mother. I mean, that's terrible, isn't it? You're the one who's living with him. You're the one who really knows. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But on the other hand, I do know like my legal rights and I do know, even though they sound like they're telling you what to do, you don't actually have to listen. (laughs) So, so, you know, um, so I stopped his his medication and then he did go back to normal. And but without that Dargas, it it is like Imelda, it was like a veil of fog was lifted from my brain and I had clarity. It was incredible. But that is also that, you know, just for people who are not into the room, so maybe wondering, Dargas is the room of like illumination, of you know, like um enlightenment, illumination, it's of like veil evaporating and so seeing something in its larger kind of truth. So it is rather wonderful that Dargas, whom Dargas could bring you that moment of clarity about what needed to happen here. And would you mind also telling our audience, I know that our group in Sweden, we have a wonderful group of people who are just waiting to meet in Sweden again into the, the second half of our training, but as you were saying earlier at the moment, like none of us can get to Sweden, basically. Um, but I know that our group in Sweden uh, did a ceremony for you and for Benji especially, uh, are you willing to tell us something about that and what effect that had? Yeah, I don't know if you just wanted to say a little bit about what the ceremony was that, that you did. Well, it was that, you know, I don't know how it came about. You had shared some experiences with Benji and, uh, and I've done this in like other groups I teach. If there is like a member of the group who's struggling with something, I think, well, we have a whole group of 
powerful practitioners here who are now are already powerful in other disciplines and now have you know clocked up a year of training in Seder. So what we did is what I think of as a temples of light exercise where we set a time where everyone, because also our group is intercontinental, it's quite hard to get them all working at the same time. So uh, I was in Sweden at the time, it had to be an evening, so the people in Canada and the rest could also do it. So we tried to get as many people as possible all working together. And I remember the instruction being, it was formulated, uh, you know, in discussion with you, that people were given permission to do spiritual work for you to like make your family life better and to do what they could for Benji with the permission of your family like all at the same time so like we created like an energetic temple like holding you and your family and all of these people did what they were guided to do by spirit which was individual for all of them that is my memory of it yeah yeah and that's it and because I, I I wrote to the group because this was I don't know maybe a year two years ago now I think, I think maybe it was last February last year because I'm yeah, it's a... for half term. So, and also someone yeah. close to me died during that same week. So I think okay. we can hang yeah. it up now. It is a year ago. It just feels like two years. No, I think it's yeah. It is a year ago. It is a I year ago. Because <laughs> yeah, Benji, Benji, it was last um, last January. Benji started respite care. And he went there once and it all exploded and they threw him out basically said they couldn't they couldn't cope with him and um that's what i wrote to the group and i just said you know i just we had really hit rock bottom as a family and i said you know i don't know if any of you can say some healing prayers or something but you know we are really just broken right now and it's really hard to sort of go on and um <clears throat> I remember, I remember the Imelda offering this ceremony. I was like, yes, please. <laughs> oh God. Oh yes, please. And, um, yeah, I mean, just, just the feeling of knowing that people were doing that for us was just so healing in itself, um, that we mattered to someone and that, you know, we were sort of cared about in that way. I can remember saying, look, you know, I don't want Benji to be cured. I don't think, you know, he's broken and, and needs fixing, but, you know, just to sort of create that like bubble of support around us would be, yeah. would be wonderful. And um, yeah, I can remember it just, it was really, really tangible, the feeling of like being held mm. and that, and that stayed. So even though, so, cause it's not like things magically got better, but I felt held. Yeah, and that's a big thing in its own right. And also, because I remember we asked people if they wanted to to send you some feedback. And I think what I remember for myself is also, you know, in spiritual work, you can connect with someone. You know, we sometimes call it the higher self, like yourself that is outside space and time. And to me, I remember it was very beautiful, like connecting with Benji on that level and seeing the much larger totality of him, not just whatever his behavior is in the moment, but, you know, like, uh, and also how really he's here on earth with his own, like, sole purpose. He's like, he's here for a reason. He's got his own very unique set of skills and talents, and he's here to make his contribution. And, uh, you know, like, he's also absolutely beautiful and very talented, very intelligent being he is. And I think that it's also just 
good, you know, it's good for all of us to be witnessed sometimes. That's one of the key principles in, say, psychotherapy or in ceremony in shamanism, that when something is witnessed, and we know that other people have really seen it, that actually changes our own perception of something. I think there is great healing in that. But it's also, um, and I have worked with children in shamanic practice, leaves me with a question of because we often meet autistic children on that level of, oh, we don't really understand their behavior and it's rather full on in the way they run around. And I think it is said that we cannot switch on our like second side because when we see these children from our spiritual eyes, like we see them on the level of soul, we see them, you know, in their totality and we actually see that they're here for the reason just like the rest of us are and the, you know, the absolutely fantastic contribution that they are going to be make, going to make, but we as a society need to get to the point where we can allow them to make that contribution, and like not like keep them away from mainstream society the way we sometimes do. So I remember that that was like one experience, but that for me really was another reminder of how important it is. And also for me, one of the reasons of doing this interview today, to sort of say, I think we need to start educating people a little that there is more to children on the um, autistic spectrum than just what we see happening in the shop. There is so, so much more. And also yeah. Benji uh, is fantastic of language. He speaks two languages fluently, like maybe better than his mom. I mean, maybe how does you there going on the way you're talking, just, just showing like how bright taught himself to read and write, like how amazingly talented he is. But of course, in the community of children on the spectrum, we also have children who do not have speech. And I remember once working with a little boy who uh, his mother made uh, an appointment for a shamanic healing session. And also when I accept a shamanic healing appointment, I start like dreaming into it. When I, the family engages me and I have permission to work, I also open the doors in my dreams. I'm willing to receive dream guidance. So in the days running up to the session with this boy, I had this dream where I saw that the boy had no language, but that music was his language. And actually my cello came. So in the dream, the cello, um, you know, not spoke to me but like made music and the cello became the voice of the child and I realized there is a language this child has it's just not the language that like everyone uses in everyday reality and that's the language of tone and sound and music uh, and I thought oh that is so interesting I really received the clue for this session but then when the mother and the child arrived for this session this boy walks into the room where I do my sessions and he went straight to my cello and he started like plucking the strings and I thought, wow, I had already seen that in my dream. But yeah, he was not verbal and he wasn't even very vocal. I think he could like grunt, but like he couldn't use speech. But he actually had a language and that language was music. So that also then meant I could talk to his mother about like, you know, I don't know, about like regular music lessons and, you know, the passing of grace and stuff. But, you know, is he put in situations where he has access to musical instruments with people who know enough about music to understand the language of music? Like maybe there is another language here that needs to be used with them. Uh, so, I mean, that's not like Benji's issue, but that's what I've seen. That's just one example of a session with an autistic child. But it's also that, again, you know, rather than just saying, oh, I don't understand this and it's so familiar, I think we just need to sort of work harder to see you know, where is that channel of communication? And even other autistic children, you know, for them it may not be music, but they may have a very special interest. And if you want to communicate with that child, 
you actually kind of have to sort of show an interest in whatever that is. You have to find that common ground. But then also when you do that, it's amazing what you find. If you can actually make that effort, you meet these really amazing people who have like a world of their own. And there is a lot of imagination there. And you know, there is such beauty. I mean, they're, you know, they're, you know, they're fully fledged human beings with, you know, they have like all of the, you know, the feelings and the talents that everyone else has. But I think the surroundings just need to work a little bit harder to open that up and also to give them the opportunity to, you know, to exercise that, to display that, to showcase what they can do. So that's like, uh, you know, again, in my book, uh, National Shamans, I've written about this, show it again. And uh, really, you know, trying to give people some sort of ideas like how you might do that. Um, yeah, well, I think we've talked for almost an hour, so I think we're coming to the close of this, Rachel. Um, and I think I already asked it at the beginning, but like taking everything into account, if you were speaking today to a parent who says, well, I'm listening to this and in what Rachel describes, I recognize a number of things that my own child does. And I'm like, you know, um, you know, this is like really difficult. Or maybe even parents who have just received a diagnosis and are like getting a diagnosis. How do you, um, what guidance would you have for parents navigating that whole journey? Say, <clears throat> so, you know, you've already said that if parents observe these issues, it's really time to, you know, don't stay alone with it, you know, get in touch with professionals and get the child assessed. And you've, you've also said that once a child has a diagnosis, you're entitled to more help. And that can be a very good thing because life's very hard without that help. But it's still, there's like a whole journey that needs to be made from the point of diagnosis to the point of like, so, you know, acceptance and finding positive ways forward where you are now. And you've really like also described like the chaos in that and the, the mishap, the terrifying accidents that can occur. So for the people who are sort of earlier on in the journey than you are, what would your advice be for them? Well, I think I think one thing would be to try and let go the ideas that you have about being a good parent, because we all have ideas culturally from our family or whatever about how we're supposed to parent. And you really have to let go of them when you're parenting a, a child with special needs because it these things just don't work but you know we have so much resistance in us because so much of it is unconscious and imprinted in us so so that would that would be um one thing and just you know it's really important to have a lot of self-forgiveness because I have heard other parents say this as well. And this has certainly been my experience in Thomas is you feel like you're failing all the time. Mm. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've, I've, I've read a lot about like parents should do this and parents should do that. And if you do this and if you do that, and there's just so much, it's all seems to be on, on you to sort of fix the situation, but you just have to really, really practice a huge amount of, of self-love and just know that, you know, you're doing your best at the end of the day. And it tends to be really chaotic for people for the first few years, I think. And there is this huge grieving process to go through. I can remember how shocked I was because it was so similar to like when my mum died and she was the first person I ever knew that had died when I was 26 and just how it hits you physically and 
like when I found when we found out about Benji having ADHD, I would be in the supermarket and suddenly be standing there, and I couldn't remember why I'd gone in or, yeah. and it, you know, it is it is it is you know really really give yourself that time to to go through that process because, like we weren't offered any emotional support. There wasn't any emotional counselling or anything for us to go to. We really needed it, but it's not something that's provided by the commune and we couldn't afford to pay for it so you know it's like you have to kind of really really watch over yourself in a way and and care for yourself and also i i would suggest don't go on facebook and tell people especially in the early stages i i mentioned it once and learned never to do it again in that way because I just found it so offensive that people felt they should tell me how to parent my own child without knowing anything. It's just, oh, you should do this. Oh, don't do that. Oh, don't touch medication. Oh, I do this. This is brilliant. Have this. I'll give you this. And it was just my boundaries were just like, no, no. You know, when you're when you're going through that stuff, you don't need all of other people's put on you. So so be really cautious, I would say, about where you present you know the information because you're so vulnerable when you you don't really know what's going on at all you know you've got to find your own way through it you don't need everybody else telling you what to do yeah and also on it and even a child on the spectrum remains a unique individual and just like with any child what works brilliant even in the same family what works for my first son doesn't work at all with my third son so i mean we can never you know, over time when you welcome it, you know, there may be some people you choose to talk to, but you choose them with care and it will be boundaries around that conversation. It will be in private, not on Facebook. But also we always have to honor the way where people, when people are different, they're unique individuals. And like you need to find an authentic way of being Benji's parent. You're not the parent of, you know, like other children and other families on Facebook. So you have to do it your way. <coughs> Yeah. And then and then the last thing that I I want to say is that because kind of initially this sort of focus on the parent kind of annoyed me, but I've I've sort of switched it around now because I was given this image last week. Someone else was asking me about autism and I was bringing through like I was asking for inspiration and I brought through this image of like the parent being like the earth or Gaia. And then the child is living within the atmosphere of that planet. So it means that you have to really, really take care of yourself. Because if the earth is like putting out toxic fumes, your child is not going to do very well. So, but I I love the Gaia image. So like now I'm Gaia. So I have to really, really, really take care of myself and try and be okay. So, so much of the focus actually needs to be on yourself. If you can find the time to do it yeah. and that's where the community has to come in and you know we need to learn how to bring these children into the community so it's not just the parents that are left dealing with it because yeah. like me and Thomas our lives have been we go to work and then we're carers and then we go to work and then we carers. Yeah. we've not had holidays or time off or anything for, for years you don't get any time of duty. And what I can say is a general comment based on years of shamanic healing practice is also that it goes for any parent and child relationship, but that, you know, your own stress 
or unresolved feelings will always come into the space. And children are a genius at reflecting that right back. So in a kind of pressure cooker situation, even as a practitioner, it becomes really hard to unpick what is actually the, care, the stress that the child is bringing or carrying and what is the stress that the parent is carrying or bringing because it becomes so entwined. And then what you will sort of see until the parent, and that's why the parent needs to be given the space. You know, it needs to be respite care and space for the parent to work on their own journey. Because then at some point when you know, and then you become like Kaya, like when you know what your own state is and where you're coming from, then you can start making decisions about the atmosphere you create where your child is going to be. And that just that can take some pressure off as well. Because especially, and in my experience, children with autism are often very, very high sensitive. And children will always respond to issues in a parent or issues in a marriage or whatever it is. But I think children on the spectrum, you know, it's almost like they don't have boundaries. For them, it is like amplified. So you can be sure that anything that's, sorry, whacking the microphone. You can be sure that anything that's playing with you or going on for you, we will feel it too, but in an amplified way. So there's also an issue there around like, you know, like boundaries and self-care. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. So okay. do you think you'll ever pull another room with Benji? Or was that a one-off? I think so. I mean, these things are sort of in, in my life, you know, yeah. so he's not separate from it. I mean, they're all around the place where he lives and, yeah. you know, he knows that he's got crystals taped under the bed that are grounding and, 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 and stuff like this. And he'll talk about nature spirits and elementals and things like that. Yeah. Don't know why that seems to be okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, Great, Rachel. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your experiences with you. I hope that like other families who come up against similar issues will watch this and like take some comfort and inspiration away from this. And maybe also a sense of recognition, you know, knowing that you're not alone. Like, you know, this goes on um, for other people as well. Yeah. So thank you very much. Any closing words? And then we're going to be winding it up for today. And what I can do, I can put your own podcast or you know, any key information oh, you want you. in the show notes. So you can maybe like send me a link and some words and I can put that in the show notes uh, with the recording. I think I'd just like to say this is the first time I've talked about this publicly because since my first experiences of how people reacted, I have been very, very cautious about it. But I just want to say how safe I felt talking to you, Imelda, because oh. <laughs> because because I know you've seen that, you know, the vision you gave me of Benji after that ceremony, I was like, she sees, <laughs> you know, and it was just so life affirming. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I was really happy that you invited me to, to do this because it feels like my next step now, because I think, you know, we need to talk about these things. How can anyone get any better understanding if, if people aren't talking about it? Yeah. So. Yeah. Exactly. And I very much feel that artistic children are here for a reason. As a society, we barely become unpicking what their unique contribution is. And I think there's more happening now, there's more activism now, and it makes my heart seem to see it. It's just something I feel very passionate about. So like thank you for being brave and thank you for freeing up your time. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll talk another time, but thank you very much for today, Rachel. Okay. Okay. So, saying goodbye to our audience. 
Um, 